Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Okay, I'm in a bit of a better mood this week, so mm-hmm. I'm a bit more awake, okay. so I won't abandon the joke. Mm-hmm. But it's a quick one. Okay. What's a skeleton's favorite dating app? Oh, 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 ah, uh, don't, one minute. Oh, plenty more, plenty more, plenty more body. The bone zone. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive Podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I am your host, a man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. H.R. Smokestein, THD, or you could call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the bride, the Smokestein, the India Horror, the experts of guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Amy, what's up? What's up? Ready to go again? Just about. With more boogeyman stuff. I never <laughs> had the boogeyman grow up. No? No, never really believed him. Never did nothing for me. I, I, me. I, no, I was always afraid of stuff in the dark. Do you know how we were talking about um in the mini show last Saturday? It was last Saturday? Yeah, yeah, the Shadow People. Mm. Uh, I would have been afraid of that growing up. Oh, Shadow People scared me. With the but boogeyman. in my head, that's what I would have seen. What I see in those dreams and those nightmares coming mm. from me. Will be what I would have thought was under the bed or in the okay. closet or behind the dark doors, you know, if there was a door that was slightly open and, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And I'd be, yeah. I, I used to be really paranoid of all that kind of stuff. I'd, be, I'd check everywhere before I go to bed. Yeah, but you see the way I check the house before I go to bed. For oh sure. my god, the back door ten like. times and like, and I'm waiting <laughs> to go and I'm at the bottom of the stairs and I'm like, just hurry up. I've seen him check it twice already. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Laurie Strode, fucking style, that. <laughs> Ten locks at our door. We're going to get to that next week. <laughs> because this week, I, like, okay, right. Okay, before I get well into it, right, I will admit, I do have some corrections to make from mm-hmm. last week's story. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I got one or two little details wrong in the ending. But I'm going to leave that till the end of the episode to correct. As a better? little teaser for next okay. week. So last week we left off in Haddonfield on Halloween of 1978 after Michael's recapture and arrest. And like I said last week, for the next 40 years, Michael went back into sleep mode. And there's a whole pile of nothing to talk about when it comes to the shape for four decades. But the world outside the sanitarium walls kept turning, even if Michael didn't. Yes, the real Michael Myers stayed locked up and quiet from 78 to 2018, but his inspiration lived on through urban legends, cults, and copycats, and that's what we'll look at this week. 
So yeah, if you tuned in to hear the rest of Meyer's legitimate, for lack of a better word, canon story, then I'm afraid you shit out of luck. Now this week, it's all Silver Shamrock Masks, The Cult of Thorn, Michael's Possible Robotic Origins, and Mystical Druidic Powers. So I'm kind of pulling a soap pack on you. Like the time they had the cliffhanger to see mm. who Cartman's dad was, and the next week they had the Terrence and Philip special yeah. instead of the conclusion to the cliffhanger story. Turns out his mom was his dad, hermaphrodite. Then later it turned out that was a line that it was actually Scott Tenorman's dad. It's a whole big thing. We don't got time to get into it this week, okay? We'll cover it on that. <laughs> <laughs> we got enough wacky shit to get through this week when it comes to Michael's story before we get back to the true story next week in part three. See it as a little palate cleanser. Last yeah. week was a lot of medical reports, transcripts, stalking and killing, and we'll have a lot more of that next week again. So we're going to break it up with some stories inspired by the boogeyman, the shape, the monster known as Michael Audrey Myers. I suppose first things first, before we get into Michael Laurie and Dr. Loomis, who will feature in this episode, we'll start with a little urban legend straight from the small town of Santa Mira, California, the location of a large Irish community and the Silver Shamrock Novelties Factory. After World War II in the rural town of Santa Mira, wealthy Irishman Conal Cochrane had invigorated the town by establishing the toy factory, the largest manufacturer and purveyor of Halloween masks in the world. You know, uh, lately on AEW, Dan mm. Hosen's had that promo, the very evil, very nice, very <laughs> yeah, nice, yeah. very nice, very yeah. evil, very nice. Uh, yeah. That's basically, that was the Silver Shamrock uh, ad that comes from the Urban Legend. It's uh, attached to the Urban Legend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, they, when they were selling these masks, they used to run this ad. Mm. And um, he'd sponsor um, a Halloween marathon, movie marathon on mm-hmm. Halloween night. But to build up to it, the masks would run adverts every day. So on the way up, Joe would be like, eight more days till Halloween, uh-huh. Halloween, Halloween, <laughs> eight more days yeah. till Halloween, silver shamrock. Okay. And it's happening every day until the build up to Halloween. And we'll get into why that's important. Want to get into the scandal now? No, no, no not yet. I want to do okay. the legend first. Just to get all the wackiness out of the way before we actually explain what happened. Okay. So these masks were super popular at the time. I believe they glowed in the dark, which would have been cool, a cool novelty in the 80s. In the late 80s, early 90s, if they could make it glow or go 3D with red and carbon and, and, and green carbon glasses, it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those glasses were shit. Mine were like all broke with an hour, like sweat would just make them disintegrate. Oh, they're gone. It's like the, the paper straws now. <laughs> so the legend goes that Conal Cochran had mastered robotics. Like beyond what even we have. Think Blade Runner level replicants, but with the personality of Michael Myers. The legend says the town of Santa Mira was only populated by factory workers and, well, robot slaves or goons of Cochrane's. Yeah, and there's the first told in the story. There's no way an Irishman is going to name his new company community Santa Mira. Yeah, it'd be more like Bally McMary or Bally something McMary. like that. <laughs> <laughs> So how, you may ask, does an old Irish war veteran gain this kind of knowledge decades before its time? And just about to ask, took the words right out of my mouth. Why, good old-fashioned Celtic Druid magic, of course. Ah, yeah. Sure, we all learned that over here. It's part of the curriculum, ancient robot magic. (laughs) (laughs) 
giving my pagan people a bad name again. First, the whole storm of the capital thing. Then summarize. Now this, my whole belief system is going to need a PR firm by the time this is all over with. Anyway, back to Cochrane. What's the point in having this awesome mystical power unless you're going to use it? And I'm sure being a good, upstanding Irishman, he shared his knowledge with the world. And now we live in a utopia where robots do everything and we can just sit back and become irrelevant. No, that was Musk, Bezos and Zuckerberg, I think. Norman Cochran was old school and instead he made Halloween masks with robotic tags on them that will be triggered by the Silver Shamrock TV advert on Halloween night. Rumor has it Cochrane was mixing ancient druid magic with modern science and had robot scientists working round the clock to perfect the signal that would tap into the mystical Celtic ruin symbol of Thorn. More on that really soon. The tr- and trigger the tags on the mask, causing the kids to murder their parents before dying themselves. Want to tell them what really happened? Yes. So everything Josh said up until the word scandal was true. Colonel Cochrane was a World War II veteran who did reinvigorate the town of Santa Mira by establishing the toy factory and the largest manufacturer of Halloween masks in the world, Silver Shamrock Toys and Novelties. He provided work to countless Irish immigrants trying to make their way and find their American dream and did a lot of good for his company community of Santa Mira. Thing was, in the 1980s, more competition started to hit the market and with the advent of cable television, now, Cochrane didn't just have the local competitors, but national ones too, with mail order advertising becoming more prevalent at the time. So, Cochrane was feeling the heat, and in order to cut costs and to keep the factory doors open, he started to cheap out on manufacturing material, causing an unapproved substance to get mixed with what was usually 100% latex masks. The substance caused the children that wore them to break out in terrible rashes and in some instances become very sick, even causing the death of one child, Buddy Kupfer Jr. Am I saying that right, Kupfer? I think so. Yeah. yeah so he acquired his mask on, on the house and directly from Cocker himself when his father was a toy store owner called to pick uh, up his Halloween shipment. Yeah, Cochran wasn't happy. It broke his heart that he'd made, you know, that he had caused the suffering to of another child. His target audience, his life's influence for decades. Some say it was an accident. Some say it was suicide. But on the night of October 31st, 1982, around 11pm, the Silver Shamrock factory burned to the ground. Cochran, its sole occupant at the time. It would not be rebuilt and it would never open its doors again. The town of Santa Mira became a ghost town within months with the community of workers moving on to search for new employment. Now, you might be asking yourself, what the fuck does that have to do with Michael Myers? Because I know I definitely was. (laughs) Well, at this point, it's a pick your own adventure because we got two big stories to tell here and one little theory to talk about. I ain't got to lead in with this theory because it directly answers your question about Mm. Then we'll look at the cult of Thorn and Loomis before we jump over to 1998 and the copycat killer that struck in California to mark the 20th anniversary of the Haddon Massacre of 1978. Cool. So how does Conal Cochran and Silver Shamrock masks tie into this story? This story about a kid who's obsessed with masks, then on Halloween night 1963 puts on a clown mask and murders his sister before becoming totally catatonic. Which was a few decades after the legendary Cochran attack, so that couldn't be it. Unless Michael was an early test subject and had an early prototype mask. 
He started his mission correctly that night, but something went wrong and Michael's brain fried before he could eliminate the rest of his family. But still keeping that urge buried deep inside him, only feeling satisfied at the death of his mother and total annihilation of the Myers family. Maybe it only worked a little and the real Myers is still buried deep down inside. Maybe this was just the first attempt at the real life boogeyman. Maybe Myers was just a mistake. But who made that mistake? Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this, plus movie reviews, watch-alongs, and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And and, and by bang, I mean, like, podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, Moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. And start listening now. I know I said today we'd look at the years of 1978 to 2018, and we will in most cases. But when it comes to Laurie Strode and what she was up to throughout this time, I'd rather keep that backstory for next week's episode. It ties in better with the overall Mm. Myers arc. Yeah. All you need to know is that Laurie was left with severe PTSD with one daughter and two failed marriages under her belt. Laurie went full Sarah Connor doomsday prepper and had set up a, like, a malicious-style compound full of traps, locks, and a well-stocked panic room. Laurie, like Loomis, had seen Michael that night in 78. And I mean, like, really saw him. Mm. Mask off, eye-to-eye. She understood the danger Loomis was constantly preaching about. She knew that behind the mask was a feral, emotionless animal who would stop at nothing to achieve his goal. Yeah. It was for that reason she was convinced Michael would return to Haddonfield again and spent the rest of her life prepping and waiting, waiting for the day he came home. Patient, anxious, anticipation. Like a mirror of the man she hated so much, who did the same only a few miles away in Smith's Grove. So after his capture in 1978, Michael was initially moved out of Haddonfield by orders of Dr. Loomis into a more secure sanitarium. He stayed there until Loomis's death in 1996, And then he was moved back to Haddonfield by a student of Loomis and Michael's new main doctor at Ranbir Sartain. So Sartain argued that after years of absolutely no progress with Michael, that maybe the familiar backdrop of Smith's Grove and Haddonfield would get him feeling a bit nostalgic and that he might finally open up. Plus, Smith's Grove had kind of been upgraded to a max security sanitarium for the criminally insane over the years, so it was perfectly suitable and more than equipped to deal with the patients uh, with the patients of Michael's caliber. So Dr. Sartain had a good reputation and a proven track record of success with some very difficult patients. So it was decided again due to how docile he had again become and an age and all injuries from 1978 into the mix that Michael Myers would be perfectly safe to return to Haddonfield to see out the end of his days in strict confinement and under constant medical study. 
doctors were obsessed with him. Everyone in the field was worth the damn had yeah. a crack at Michael Myers. No one outside of Loomis ever got more than two words out of the man. But I suppose more on that next week. Why the fuck, in your right mind, would anybody think it was a good idea to bring him back to Haddonfield? I, I know they wanted to study him and think they'd crack him or something. But it just seems like after the history there, you're just better off to keep him away. The people of Haddonfield aren't going to be happy he's there. No. I mean, I, I, I just think... Maybe we shouldn't have been listening to this doctor. I think not one of those professionals involved in those cases were well trained at all in any way. Loomis, I give, I, I didn't give him enough credit last week. Loomis did a lot, a lot of work here, and we'll be kind of getting into that as we go along. Uh, Because while Laurie was prepping, and while Michael was laying out in the psychiatrist's couch talking about his feelings with Sartain, Loomis was left busy in Haddonfield. Michael had become something of an icon in the 1978 attacks, and icons attract fans, fan fanat- fanatic fans, over-the-top, psycho-stalker fans, cult-starting fans, and apparently that's what happened in 1988, when Dr. Terence Wine, the chief administrator of Smith's Grove Sanitarium, began to build a little following that he called the Cult of Thorn. Now, again, we already talked about this a little bit Mm -hmm. because it also links up with our urban legend from before. We'll talk about that a little later more again. Wiley's followers believed Michael Myers was only a vessel, a host body for an evil ancient entity known as Thorn, named after a constellation of stars that can be typically seen best on October 31st. The constellation was supposed to hold a dark curse known as the Curse of Thorn. Want to tell them about it? So the Curse of Thorn is a mystical runic symbol based on a namesake constellation Thorn that could appear during the ancient feast called Samhain, the holiday also known as All Hallows' Eve or simply Halloween. To prevent mass death among tribes, one family was chosen to bear the curse. This curse would require the bearer to sacrificially murder his or her entire family, which would in turn spare the entire community from events such as plague and drought. The curse also appears to give the cursed inhuman strength and immunity from death. The curse of porn is placed on a child by a leader of the porn cult. It commands the child to kill his entire family as a blood sacrifice to keep the cult alive. It also makes that child able to withstand serious injuries that would result in death for any normal human being. It turns the child into pure evil. <laughs> Loomis must love that. Major <laughs> hold on Wine's plans. Michael didn't stop after his family, so that would mean the curse didn't work, right? Or, and hear me out, maybe it's all just bullshit. Michael's a bit crazy. <laughs> and wine's a bit fucking crazy by the sounds of things. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I've seen this. Um, Rune. I didn't really know what it was attached to, but I have seen this rune on stones, you know, some rune stones yeah. that I have. Yeah. So it is it is out there. I, I meant to look it up a bit more before I did this, but after I read about the Curse of Thorn, I kind of just kept kind of going down that rabbit hole for a while. <laughs> and that left me forgetting to do what I was supposed to do. Either way, Wine and his followers firmly believed the myth and the repercussions of the curse and not appeasing the evil god Thorn. Not much is known about this cult. Only what Dr. Loomis has shared with us in his book, The Devil's Eyes and The Devil's Eye or The Devil Walks Among Us. He claims that Wine convinced his followers that Michael was still in Smith's Grove under his care and supervision, 
hidden from the world so as to protect the spirit of Thorn. And as you said, Wine believed Michael was only a vessel. He believed through druid magic he could move that entity from Michael to another child. Laurie Strode actually had her first child around this time. Her name was Karen Strode. Wine used this information and her reclusivity at the time to fabricate a story using another troubled child by the name of Jamie Lloyd as Strode's surrogate child. In fact, he didn't stop there. Wine followed his, he told his followers that Michael targeted Laurie to begin with because he was her younger sister and a baby at the time of the murders. Now, this was brought up as well because when Michael broke out of the sanitarium the first time, mm. the first thing he had actually written on the walls in blood before he left was sister. So that's how that rumor got started as well. He okay. was referring to Judith. Yeah. But yeah. people thought he was, you know, because that got out there mm. and obviously urban legends, the way they get started, it was like he was after his sister. So he must have, Laurie Strode must have been his sister. Okay. Laurie Strode, DNA tests were even done. Laurie Strode is a Strode. And not, not his sister. No. No, and so Wine was using this information, and again, like I said, the reclusivity, and he kind of, like, he faked this uh, Laurie Stroll death situation. He said she'd been in a car accident. He spread this rumor she'd been in a car accident. Laurie Mm. was seen so little at the time that people would believe it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So at the time, there was this troubled child who was in foster care. She was orphaned, and she was in foster care. Her name was Jamie Lloyd. Mm. Now, Jamie was also under the care of Dr. Loomis, and it was for a specific reason. It's because she also stabbed her foster mother while wearing a clown costume. So there was a lot of similarities to the Michael case. Now, again, it was her foster mother. She didn't kill her, Mm -hmm. and she did stab her, and she ended up in care for a good few years after that. But obviously, Wine took that to be a sign of the next you know, like the Antichrist is yeah. here, the next Myers yeah. is here for us, you know? Yeah. So he spun that with his followers. So, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of cult, either bullshit as usual, you know, just trying to, I mean, like, again, he was telling them that Michael was in the sanitarium mm. and mm. under his control. The only reason that the public didn't know is because there'd be outrage. He was in an underground special cell, you know, where yeah, he would be yeah. taken care of and recuperated until he would next rise for the Curse of Thorns, you mm, know? Yeah. And then he led him to believe that this child, Jamie, was actually the child of Laurie Strode. Now, I'm sure if Laurie had known at the time, she would have came out and, nah. you know, said yeah, no and helped out. Not. But it was kind of something that was swept under. It was kind of something that was kept within this little cult, you know? Okay, yeah. So he would regularly send uh his followers out like every night not regularly not every halloween but every couple of halloweens mm. he would send his followers out in these myers costumes in the shatner mask in the overalls and have them stand and kind of stalk the, the strode the, the remaining strode family or the uh lloyd family or mm. the family taking care of jamie lloyd oh okay and, and okay. follow jamie lloyd yeah. basically like what scientologists do when they when a scientologist leaves they were doing this to these two families Aye. for years. So obviously more rumors would start about you know, oh, Michael Myers is back around the place. So like mm. you have all these stories of Myers turning up yeah. throughout the nineties and stuff like that when it was usually one of these assets. Mm. It's like when oh, it was like the the time when it was coming out and we had that situation where clowns were being seen everywhere. Yeah. But this was them. No. Again, this links us right back around to our urban legend as well with the silver shamrock mask. Right? Mm-hmm. 
because another belief is that he wasn't using his followers. He was using robots that he had acquired from our good friend yeah, Cochrane. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that these were Myers drones, kind of uh, cyborg drones. Yeah. And uh, that they were going out to do his bidding. Because that's the thing about it. Although we don't know a whole part about what's going on here, there was a few like suspicious deaths mm. around the area, just sporadically over the 90s and kind of late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. That are kind of attributed to this cult but can't be proven because it's very hard to find who was in the cult to begin with. Do you okay. know? Now, yeah. apparently, there is the tattoo of the, the, the rune that a lot of them will have. That they have, a, yeah. But again, a lot of the people who were involved with this cult went missing from Haddonfield once the cult kind of expired done. itself. Mm-hmm. And we will get mm-hmm. to that too. Because just like every other cult leader, he could not follow through in his promises. Do you want to tell him what happened, Amy? Yep. So it's believed around 1995, the group grew disillusioned by wine and the lack of results from his promises. And that one member came across Michael's files, discovering the truth about his whereabouts and Wine's lack of interaction with him. This proved to be the final straw, and on Halloween night of 1995, Wine was found by Dr. Loomis dead in Smith's Grove Sanitarium's basement, surrounded by Celtic Druid symbols on a makeshift altar in his cult robes and a Michael Myers mask, having been sacrificially stabbed to death by his own followers for his deception. Again, we're about to get into this little bit here. About, uh, so, I'll say it for us, no one was ever charged in connection with Wine's death. And not long after the passing of Dr. Loomis and of Wine, Michael was returned to Smith's Grove to continue his care under Dr. Sertan and would remain there dormant for another 22 years. There's just been a confirmed cult there. Why would you bring him back? I know, eh? Uh, Do you know? Stupid. It's like these people left because they found out he wasn't there anymore. And now you think, you know, do you know what? Now that they're gone, now we will bring them You're all bait and switch. <laughs> okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials. No good at Insta. Can't send a tweet or an X or whatever that super villain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon. But we know. You want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive, alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the antisocial soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at it's alive alive pod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more of what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll all always try to reply to everyone so come say hi we don't bite well at least amy doesn't and she keeps me well fed so you got nothing to worry about now back to the show <laughs> so we're gonna switch over now and get away from the mystical shit for a little bit uh-huh and we're gonna talk about some actual true crime because in 1998 to mark the 20th anniversary of the haddonfield babysitter massacre Escaped mental patient Harold Trumbull donned the Myers-inspired mask and overalls and went on a killing spree in Illinois and California. Trumbull, a die-hard serial killer trivia expert, was Michael's number one fanboy. 
and after a confusion on some release forms, found himself released from Smith's Grove Sanitarium earlier than expected and with all the talk of Michael in Smith's Grove, especially now with him back in the sanitarium, Trumbull felt it was up to him to take over where his idol had left off. Trumbull started his killing spree in Illinois, stabbing to death long-time nurse and close friend of Loomis, marrying Marion Winnington. I think this is the lady that was in the car with him when Michael mm. first escaped. Mm-hmm. Along so. with two teens, Jimmy, Jimmy Odell and Tony Alger, who happened to be playing hockey outside her house at the time of Trumbull's arrival. It's believed he was looking for Loomis's old case files, which Marion had inherited on his death. So he wanted to be exactly like Michael and planned to study these files to get the MO down to a T. Yeah, and with the heat on, Trumbull moved his massacre from Illinois to California, targeting a woman who I have to say is Laurie Strode's doppelganger. They could have been sisters, to be fair. Yeah, Trumbull definitely spent time picking her out, and the resemblance was uncanny. It couldn't have been a coincidence. Either way, Carrie Tate and her son John lived on the grounds of Hillcrest Academy, a private boarding school in Summer Glen, California. Over the Halloween weekend of 1998, Trumbull murdered, in addition to the Illinois killings, Charles DeVore, Sarah Wainthorpe, and Will Brennan, along with seriously assaulting Molly Cartwell, Kerry, and John Tate. Trumbull's reign of terror ended when Kerry got the better of her attacker, pinning him to a tree with her car and taking his head off with an axe. Oh, overkill. Yeah, Kerry ended up in mental care the rest of her life after experiencing this, dying three years later of an unknown illness. You have to remember, it's the 20th anniversary. Interest has peaked again. Books, movies, documentaries, the media was littered with Michael Myers. Even so much so that it inspired a terrible, cheap, and insulting reality TV show where contestants had to spend the night in the heavily cameraed Myers house in Haddonfield on Halloween. Over the night, a fake Myers picked off contestants one by one, and in the end it turned out to be a mockumentary-style fake reality TV horror special hosted by Buster Rhymes and Tyra Banks. Buster beat up the fake Myers in the end, in the end saving the day, electrocuting them. I mean, these were yeah. cheesy, cheap, shitty fucking like, fireworks going off uh-huh. and all that stuff. It was dumb and not well received by the Strode family or any of the people of Haddonfield, to be honest. Yeah, and I can understand why. Did you watch it? It was like a web series. I, I watched don't it think in pre- preparation for this, and I mean, Buster Rhymes is over. The I heard about top. it. It's ridiculous. And mm. um, I wouldn't mind the Michael Myers had a day they got a terrible costume for it. <laughs> yeah. Terrible costume. <laughs> it looked like it came off wish. I need to see it. <laughs> so as I said at the start of the episode, I made a few mistakes last week. Mm. This was primarily with the ending and Michael's capture, which I'll redo here in just a minute. Okay. But first I have to apologize for muddying the good name of Dr. Sam Loomis. Going off the urban legends of Michael and the cult of Thorn, the research would lead you to believe he was a raving lunatic obsessed with Michael. Mm. Realistically, he was a man who knew evil when he saw it, and he was determined to make his life's work to ensure Michael remained in prison for the rest of his natural life. There is nothing natural about Michael's life. (laughs) Either way, outside of his time studying Michael, he had to keep tabs on Dr. Wine, who he, who he had been suspicious of for quite a, some time. And he was helping to protect 
and treat the misfortune that Laurie Strode's standing, Jamie Lloyd. So a good man overall, just a little tunnel vision in his life's work and Michael. So the ending, how did you fuck that up last week? Well, it wasn't a big fuck up. It's just little details yeah. that are kind of interesting. And okay. uh, something that I kind of passed over as well. And okay. that's how he surrendered. So last week I spoke of how Deputy Frank Hawkins and Pete McCabe had Michael back into the old Myers house and they were doing a sweep of the grounds to try and find him. What I missed was mm. that McCabe was actually a sort of childhood friend of Michael's. His mother used to send him there on play dates with the silent child out of pity. And McCabe oh. apparently was reminiscing about how Michael used to just spend all his time throughout these play dates just standing at his sister's window, staring out the window and into the abyss. It was as he recalled this memory aloud for Hawkins, who was searching a different room, that Michael struck, and like I said last week, he moved with the speed of a predator, just waiting to strike. He began to strangle McCabe with some rope. Hawkins then entered the room, shooting McCabe through the neck by mistake, killing him in an attempt to save him from Myers. Then, just as he did in 1978, Michael walked from the room, down the stairs, and stood in the exact same spot he had all those years beforehand as a deranged six-year-old, mm. waiting for his parents and the police to come and take him away, just replacing his parents with Loomis this time. It completely passed me over, the, you know, the, the actual yeah. meaning behind him walking out after him. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, that must have been like him reliving the sister's mother, killing McCabe, and then strolling outside, right down those same stairs, right out the same door, right down the same path, stopping at the exact same point exactly. to be taken back into yeah. custody, yeah. like, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. The court listened to Loomis's recommendation for what should be done with Michael before deciding he was still classified insane and sent back to a sanitarium. Mm. Loomis had recommended the death penalty, saying, My suggestion is termination. Death is the only solution from Michael. There's nothing to be gained from keeping evil alive. And he was right, because 22 years later, the shape would come home again. Loomis again left down by one of his Smith's Grove colleagues. This time, though, Michael knew time was running out for him. So he would hit the berserker mode button hard and go on a killing spree, unlike anything seen in modern history to this day. What'll happen to Haddonfield when Michael returns? What'll happen to Laurie and her now grown family, which includes her daughter Karen, her son-in-law Ray and granddaughter Alison? What'll happen next in the mythology of Michael? All this will be answered, and even more next week in The Shape, Michael Myers, Part (laughs) 3. And four next week as well. We're giving you two. two I know this week's a little bit short. We're under a little bit of pressure to get these two scripts written. And we got an interview as well tomorrow to do. Maybe. We do. So uh, we're, we got this. We got this nice little palate cleanser in here with mm-hmm. all the fun Michael stuff before we get mm-hmm. back to the terrible, awful, fury life of Michael Myers yes. and all the dead people. Yeah. So until next week, same alive, alive time, same Harvest Channel. See you next week. Love you. Bye bye. Bye bye.